Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 79. The Silver Chair, Part 2. Well, welcome everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where David, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. Earlier this season, we were eavesdropping on Screwtape's letters and then listening in on his toast that he proposed. But today, we continue with our Narnia book for this season, The Silver Chair. Once again, all the co-hosts are here, David, Matt, and myself, and we are also joined by my favorite person in the world, my wife, our special guest host, Kristen Ditchfield. It's great to be with you all. What's everyone been up to since the last time we recorded? <laughs> I went to the bathroom. Let's see. I, I poured a new glass of scotch and stretched my legs. I got uh, some popcorn. We're doing a <laughs> I looked at adorable pictures of my nephew's birthday party on Facebook. Oh, oh my goodness. That's the winner. That's the winner. <laughs> and listeners, we talked about uh, one of our, we've, we've been reading ways to cook popcorn. And one of the ones we've come across and not tried yet is you take your extra bacon grease and you pop your popcorn in that. And cover it with maple sugar. Yes, absolutely. Because the diabetes won't just happen on its own. <laughs> I asked a buddy of mine how he's doing, and he patted his big bell, and he said, I'm keeping my weight up. <laughs> I might have to try this. It's Father's Day tomorrow, and I'm cooking my father brunch, and I'm probably going to have plenty of leftover bacon grease. Okay. Yeah, save that stuff. You can even save it on the counter. It'll last for, for quite a while. My favorite, though, is to take my cast iron pan and heat up the oven to 400, put in about a quarter to a half inch of bacon grease, and then mix up um, corn uh, cornbread uh, mix. And then when it's all nice and steamy, you pour the mix into the hot pan and see the bacon grease sizzling on the cornbread. And yeah, okay. I thought this and was a C.S. Lewis show. C.S. Lewis <laughs> liked food. Weren't you listening to the last episode? Remember, C.S. Lewis is obsessed with food, you know? We're just trying to, we're yes. channeling, it's just called method acting. We're trying to channel our inner CSS right now. That's the connection. Okay. Yeah. And, and listeners, if you didn't get the inside joke from the very beginning, we just recorded the first part for an hour and a half and we took a five minute break and we're back again. Yep. And we're thinking about food. So, yes. hey Matt, hit us with the quote of the week. Uh, and this is one of my all time favorites. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things. Trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't an Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Ah. I think Andrew gave me that honor of reading that because I quoted part of that quote is the number one quote I pulled from this book that I sent to our group chat because it related to my own spiritual journey of, I don't know if Christianity is true, but even if it's not, mm -hmm. I want to live this way because it seems to be working a lot better in the way I'm living. And so this is, this mm -hmm. is the second part. We're going to get a lot of good deep stuff. So I got to just close my mouth and let us progress with delayed gratification. <laughs> Well, you'd like to think that, Matt, but my wife said that this was one of her favorite quotes. Too, so. <laughs> Between the two of you, it was a sure thing. I knew Kristen so, was great. Yes, she is. I'm, I'm doubtful about her taste in men, but I'm taking it and running. <laughs> Everybody's allowed to make one mistake. Uh -huh. yes. Well, and as long as she keeps making it for the rest of my life, I'll be happy. 
Well so, said. The drink of the week. Uh, mine is the very tail end. Listeners, Matt got me a, a sampler a set of three small bottles of, of whiskey. And the last time we recorded, I had the Klein Elish 14. And then the last episode, we did the Talisker 10. And now I'm on my last dram of Cull Ela 12. Is that what you're drinking too, oh, Matt? Yes, sir. And I am the very last as well. I poured the rest of the bottle. Ah, Vino Verde is the color. So it's got a little green to it. It's getting dark here. So well, I can see that green. Can you see the green? That's definitely way right. greener it's than the there. Talisker, which was very amber. And the nose is soft, juniper, garden mint, grass, and burnt grass. Oh, by the way, the Talisker is the only scotch uh, brewed on the Isle of Skye. Hmm. I can smell the burnt grass. Can you smell the burnt grass? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that is no. All of these tasting notes are made up. And why are we still doing this? <laughs> I, well, yeah, Andrew, Andrew gets really upset with me. But when he introduced me to this whole scotch drinking thing, I stood in the in the store reading the descriptions and laughing, you know, until I cried. And he thought I wasn't taking it very seriously. But I mean, who wants to drink something that tastes like burnt grass? (laughs) Actually, to be honest, I was upset that she wasn't buying into my own pompousness. (laughs) Or what, David, didn't we have iced frosting of a Cinnabon or something? And then we had Mm -hmm. sea breeze of a sand dune. And I'm like, what the heck does a sea breeze of a sand dune taste like? (laughs) I think somebody said, you know, rubbish burning tires and glad hefty sacks. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think Rusted you have to, nails, dirt. You have to yeah. drink Band-Aids. the whole bottle before you write this. <laughs> <laughs> Wisest thing said on this entire episode. All right. The initial taste, lightly oily, soothing, and appetizing, much like myself. I describe it as a slightly dirtier, grassier, peatier version of Talisker. It's got a similar oiliness. A similar feel and smoothness, but it's just more peaty. It's the mm. burnt grass. Lots of flavor development, becoming spicy, vanilla, nutmeg, mustard seed, and complex flavors combining with great delicacy with a long finish. I get the long finish. I give it medium finish, but that's okay. And while you guys are fussing around with this, I am still drinking my half-fang-sized can of lager, uh, Foster's, because in today's episode, we're going down under. I told under. you to finish that, David. <laughs> they call it an oil can, don't they? <laughs> ah, It is quite obnoxious. It's yes. beautiful. I went to Malcolm Geit, uh, lived in Cambridge, and his uh, band Mystery Train, their, their home pub was called The Blue Ball, and they had a curmudgeonly old... Uh, bartender owner there and somebody came in and asked for a lager and he said get out of here we don't serve lager we only serve beer <laughs> yeah so if it wasn't brown and had things growing out of it they didn't. So let's just say him and i would not have been friends i'd come in and be like do you guys have a blue moon uh, <laughs> i would like an apple teeny <laughs> i can have an apple teeny <laughs> <laughs> You can go down the road. Uh, my favorite closing line of any novel is out of the silent planet where Ransom comes back from Mars for a year. And what he wants is a pint of bitter, please. And listeners, bitter beer isn't actually bitter. It's kind of malty and sweet. So we were waxing eloquent about um, about uh, old speckled hen last episode. And I can't wait for another pint. Okay. We should have a toast, don't you think? Yeah, I love Andrew's just free-flowing toasts. <laughs> or are we letting Kristen do this one? Uh, no, I'll, I'll let Andrew do the toast, but how about if I introduce I it? I like it. 
Uh, one, one of the benefits for Gold Level supporters on Patreon is that we toast one of them each episode. And today we're toasting Corey Monahan. And although he has an Irish name, we're going to toast Corey with a, with a good scotch and Australian beer. And what are you drinking, honey? Well, I got my sparkling water. Okay, so we have <laughs> France covered with LaCroix. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't give me hives. I mean, that's that's the that's just the that benefit for me. Watch, yes. watch this, Corey. Uh, we do lift our glasses and toast you in honor of the fact that someday we will gather around the throne with people from every tribe and tongue. And so we lift our glasses and we toast to Corey. To Corey. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, nice. How many chapters are there? Uh, we begin with chapter 10, and it runs through chapter uh, 16. Those are Roman numerals, uh, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any American? Actually, What's chapter Do you have X? any American numerals? <laughs> <laughs> do you know, I, I discovered this just a couple of years ago. When they're in lowercase, like, and they have the eyes with dots on them, you know what those are called? Not a clue. Those are called Romanettes. <laughs> oh, I would never have known that. Which sounds like something you'd, like, order as a snack in the Coliseum. Yeah, and I'll have a box of Romanettes. And so, Romanettes. Well, are you small. know, thanks for reminding me that I might not be able to go to the Coliseum as well. Yeah. So, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to, my Europe trip, I'm supposed to go to London. And Italy just put a five day quarantine. So, even if I can get to London, which I'm still optimistic about, I was doing five days in Rome to like go to Vatican and all this mm. stuff. And, they just put a five-day quarantine from any person who comes from England to Italy because of that Delta variant of COVID that's going through. And I'm like, oh, no. But then actually a person who's devoutly Catholic sent me this Camino walk in right outside of London that goes to St. Augustine in Ram Post or something, something, um, some town. Mm -hmm. And okay. I might actually go do this 80-mile walk if I can't go to Rome and just walk to St. Augustine where he landed when he came to evangelize England. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe this is God's oh, way of saying wow. the Camino is what he wants me to do, not the Vatican. <laughs> oh. I, I think God really just wants you to put off your trip till next year and come to us. <laughs> <laughs> That's the real the answer. Lewis Foundation was supposed to have a, a, a their their conference in 2020. And of course, we had to delay it uh, last year and that year and last year as well. And so we have a number of amazing guests. I think Philip Yancey is coming and Ooh, the uh, author Philip Yancey. Oh, yeah. I read him in yeah. high school. I really liked him. He's actually coming near to you. There's Michigan's got a C.S. Lewis day, oh, or what? There's, there's a thing happening. Yeah, I, yeah, dude. I sent. When it did to you me. send this to me? <laughs> Check your email. Yeah, uh, has a, there's an annual Lewis Festival there, and uh, and we have a tentative uh, contact with the, the organizer, and so maybe next year in 2022, I'll. Uh, I've talked with David Krauss about doing a women in C.S. Lewis thing, uh, perhaps in Petoskey. Mm -hmm. So there's there's certainly that. Yancey's actually the last chapter in my book, Mere Christians. Um, so that was a great deal of fun. Oh, and um, I just, uh, I was asked by Christian History Magazine, they're doing a Lewis edition again. They haven't done one in many years. Um, and Jennifer Woodruff Tate, uh, the editor there, has asked me to write the introduction of Lewis's works for the uninitiated. So I did a, a quick initiation. Um, here's what kinds of books of Lewis's and here's where to start. Will Dr. So Armstrong be writing anything? Uh, I'm not sure. Because I know he mentioned, uh, didn't he work there for 10 years or 15 years? It'd be interesting if he does. 
yeah. that like it'd be cool if, Chris Armstrong? if if he did it'd be cool yeah, if right, right. all three of us did an episode and just talked about whatever that's coming out well and i know i know chris i, I owe chris some beers and so we'll uh, let's do it in person because i think he's in wisconsin uh it, perhaps perhaps so when i met him he was still a week cut so anyway that's uh some of what's going on shall we start our episode or we have more news everybody good let's get to it okay <laughs> david <laughs> chapter 10 travels without the sun at the end of their slide the children uh, and Puddleglum are met by Earthmen, probably gnomes, who take the three down further to meet the Queen of the Deep Realm. After traveling for days in the dark on a ship, they come to a city and meet the Black Knight, who tells of the Queen and mentions his great affliction that he has, which uh, requires that he be bound to a silver chair every night because he raves for an hour. And he also tells of his plans to become a king and marry the queen and rule. So if on this podcast we normally go further up and further in, uh, this time we're going further down and further in. And I think Michael Ward would remind us that the silver chair, the absence of the sun, I think is important. Uh, the, the planet over the silver chair is the moon, if I'm not mistaken. And the moon's uh, metal is silver, according to medieval uh, iconography. And so that's uh, that's a little take on there. What do you have, honey? Well, you know, I think about how uh, Jill and Eustace talk to the prince, um, tell him how they came to be in the underworld, and they talk about the sign that they were given, right? The lettering under me. That's what they followed to arrive in this place. And he he mocks them. He teases them gently, but he says, you know, you that that you've made a silly mistake because those letters were carved by some king centuries ago that isn't a sign that was meant for you and and they begin to feel a little bit foolish but i love what a puddle glum says here i think is so instructive he says that there are no accidents. He said, our guide is Aslan and he was there when the giant king caused the letters to be cut and he knew already all things that would come of them, including this. Mm. You know, God is sovereign and even things that were done generations ago and words that were written that have been passed down to us for thousands of years still speak into our lives today. And maybe they meant one thing to the people who heard it then, but God still uses them to speak to us and they're relevant and powerful and life changing. And I think that's important to to remember. I, I love that um, that observation that Puddle Glum makes. Mm. And we see that in biblical prophecy. It means mm -hmm. something immediately, but there are multiple fulfillments getting greater and greater throughout salvation history. The Black Knight, he's a bit of a prat. That's what I wrote in my notes. <laughs> he's so annoying. Yes. Uh, and he actually reminds me of Screwtape when he, wow. when he says that. Because what he's saying is, because I know some of the causes of this message to be written, that's what it can be reduced to. Hmm. Because Screwtape says that how you want your man to interpret events, if, if, it, if it's just to reinforce the enemy's point of view, then let them regard this as real life, those things that they can explain, particularly when there's a, a bit of the causal mm -hmm. sequence that they can see, uh, but never let them look beyond that. Well, and it's, uh, I think, a testament to what we did after every letter to unscrewing Screwtape. So even if the king said, though under earth and throneless now I be, yet while I lived, all earth was under me, the only thing that mattered now was the sign leading them to the salvation of Rillian. 
And so it's an untwisting of what has been twisted. And that's part of our work in this world is to take what has been twisted or, or, or disproportioned and to, and to set it right and to set it correct. So we do have another modern analogy in this, uh, in this chapter. When the narrator is describing the low archway and the small cave and the, 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 the is long and narrow, and he says it's about the shape and size of a cathedral. That will not only pull the children away from being scared of being in the, in the underworld, but remind them that there is something holy going on there, that it's, uh, it's the size of an enormous church. And a, si- it, a cathedral will re- remind children, if they know anything about it, of authority, true authority, you know, a bishop and, uh, and religious services and beauty. And so uh, there can be beauty there. And so it's an, again, it's a modern analogy as a way to help the children who may be, you know, in bed a little bit afraid. Is there a literary illusion with regards to the sleeping animals who are going to awake at the end of the world? I wasn't sure about that. You know, I have a question about that, and I don't know. Um, in fact, the quest, the note that I have in my in my book um, is literally a question: Is this Hades? Are they dead? Are these uh, are these souls before a resurrection? Um, I'm not sure. Do you have a take on that? Well, yeah, I, I found a couple of scriptures um, in First Thessalonians four and First Corinthians fifteen that talk about what will happen at the end of time. The dead in Christ will rise, right? And there are people who will who will be brought to life in in the end um, and be reunited with all of us, and we'll all be resurrected together. So all through the next few chapters, there are many many references to the end of the world and things that are going to happen that that seem to come right out of Revelation or other New Testament books. And it's kind of an echo of that, that I, I find, um, you know, it, the, the blessing is that it, what can be kind of scary when you read the scripture as a kid, or you learn about it in Sunday school or whatever, Lewis helps us to kind of envision what that might look like in this fairy tale setting in this world of Narnia. And, and it doesn't seem quite so strange and, and unfamiliar when we run across it in scripture, but this idea that, that the dead will be brought to life again, that there are things in the deep that will be resurrected and brought to light, um, you know, is a powerful theme here. Even animals. Yes. Even animals. Dogs. And it also could be that there are, yes, dogs. Um, it could be that, that Narnia is under a different spiritual economy, and we certainly find Kronos lying asleep, and Kronos awakes at the end of the world to bring an end to Narnia. And so it's, I think, an important reminder for our, our listeners to know that there isn't a one-to-one correspondence for everything and everything doesn't necessarily symbolize. But as Kristen was just pointing out, there are analogies, there are echoes, and uh, Lewis is kind of filling these stories with truth from all different sources and reminding us to kind of keep, make sure that we have ears to hear. Someone help me understand Father Time. I thought this was going to be more significant and then I didn't really feel like a lot of closure with the Father Time yes. character arch. So Father Time uh, is called Kronos, um, and that's his Greek name, um, and he's associated with time. Uh, but he's also called Saturn. And if Michael Ward is right, and I absolutely believe that he is, in the last battle, um, Kronos wakes up and puts an end to Narnian time. And the stars uh, fall from the sky. And so Kronos is sleeping until the end of the Narnian world. Um, But, you know, as we see in the last battle, which we'll get to in a few seasons, Diggory was a boy at the beginning of Narnia, and he's an old man, and he sees the end of Narnia. But then, spoiler alert, 
Narnia and England are reborn in the best sense in Essence Country. And by the way, that's the best description of heaven I think that you can find for me, Narnia and England. <laughs> no disagreement here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it will also have the Mexican food of Southern California. Just oh, that yes, but also instead of room, rooms, positively rooms full of Turkish delight, it will be crunchy bars. <laughs> <laughs> I would betray my family for a handful of those. <laughs> the only other comment, I'm just curious, your guys' thoughts on a bit of a discussion, because it'll play out, I think, as a, a theme throughout this is many sink down and few return to the sunlit lands. Like, mm -hmm. so if we think of down there is where you know, the gnomes are under the enchantment, the black knights under the enchantment. Is it too much of a stretch to say that's where we go and we fall under the enchantment of, let's say, the world and we turn away from our adventure? The reason I'm struggling and I'm asking is because at the same time, they're going down there for their adventure. So they're definitely not turning away by going down there. But it seems like the average person down there is down there because they have been under this enchantment that's kept them from experiencing the trueness of beauty. And then I, it's also, I don't want to say slightly discouraging, but few return to the sunlit lands. But then obviously we see almost all of them return to the sunlit. Well, I guess yeah, the gnomes go even deeper down technically to Brism. But um, what, what do you guys make of all that? Think about the chiastic nature of this. All right, where are the gnomes? They are, and we'll you know we'll find this in in a couple of chapters. Those gnomes are way too close to the surface for their own taste. Mm. And as soon as they're set free, they get to go home, which is down, 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 down. It's like the mer people. In, at the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, who love living under uh, underwater, right? And so think of it as a sign of hope. Many sink down to the underworld and only a few have to return to the sunlit lands. They don't want to come to the sunlit lands. They want to go home. And so I think that maybe in the watchword during their bondage to the queen, it's a sign of hope that someday they can go home. And of course, our home is in heaven. And we are looking for a city with true foundations. And so while we want to be in the sunlit lands or in the city whose light is, is, is Christ, um, for them, they want to go back to where they feel most, most, uh, most welcome. And I think that's what ultimately God has for us, too. So that's just something that popped into mind as you were asking. I would just compare all of this to the harrowing of Hades. Uh, when yeah. Christ descends to the dead to preach to those who are in prison, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's, it's only because he has descended that we can ascend. Mm -hmm. All the time, the, the gnomes are, are, repeat, are repeating the phrase that, nope, very few people make it back. Well, that's not going to be the case, at least for, for our heroes. Right, right. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, chapter 11 in the Dark Castle. The prince hosts them, then his fit comes on as he's bound to the silver chair. While apparently mad, he charges them to loose him in Aslan's name. And they get this sign right, and free him, and he returns to sanity. The group then plan their escape. Finally, they get a sign right. <laughs> if you were counting, there are four, and they flubbed three of them. But this is the most important one uh, in Aslan's name. I can help but think of all the scriptures that talk about in Jesus' name. And that is the name. That is the watchword. That is what gets their attention. And they're not sure what's going to happen. They're not sure if it's a mistake, but they're willing to live with the consequences rather than mess up this last most important sign. Hmm. 
It reminds me of the psalm that says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run in it and are safe. And one of these pocket prayers that I commend to our listeners is just the name of Jesus, even his title, Lord. Just that one word can be a prayer, especially said in faith, especially under stress. Run to the name of the Lord, the name with which we are marked. Run to the name and be safe. And I think that that's a great comfort that they recognize the power of Aslan's name. So when Rillian is in the chair, and so listeners, he has this hour where the enchantment's somewhat wearing off. And so they put him in a chair and he's, the reason they put him in a chair is because he's like realizing it as long as he gets through this where it doesn't impact him enough, he'll go back to his old ways, fall asleep and, and be as he was under this enchantment. It really made me think of like the hour we go to church and how sometimes I feel this in my own life. I try to go to daily mass as much as I can. And when I go, I feel almost everything in right order. I feel mm -hmm. my desires rightly ordered. I feel a really a deep sense of peace, a joy. I can come from one of the worst days in the market with complete distractions from work and I'll somehow be there and I'll be in a sense of peace. But then I'll leave and it's amazing how much the enchantment comes right back on me. And I think mm -hmm. to myself, if only I let this permeate me more, if only I somehow allowed this, created a space for this to, to carry out from not that hour, but to the other 23 hours of my day, how much different things would be. But the enchantment is very strong. And, mm -hmm. and I just have to create that space more often for Christ to form within me and to do that. So that was just an image, whether this is what Lewis is going mm -hmm. for or not. I know he started to go to Holy Communion more frequently near the later part of his life, but like that's just what I got from this. It may be worth spending some time with Henry Nouwen's marvelous little book, The Way of the Heart. Oh, I love, okay. He looks I love Henry Nouwen. I've right? read like all of his books. Mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's second to Lewis to me. <laughs> so well done. We're on the same wavelength, <laughs> Andrew, again for two episodes yeah. in a row. I can't wait to hear what Kristen has to say to jump in. But in that marvelous book, he talks about the Desert Fathers and their way of solitude, silence, and prayer. And in one of the passages, one of the monks said that solitude or silence is a portable cell and it guards the fire within. And so maybe when you leave mass, think about spending the next hour or two in silence, tending to that fire so that it can carry you perhaps a little further. It's a tiny little book. It's beautifully written. It bears much rereading. And, uh, and I commend it to, to your attention and to that of our listeners. The Way of the Heart by Henry Nowen. <laughs> Well, I'm just thinking of, I mean, I, I love Nowen as well. I'm actually working on my doctorate in spiritual formation as taught by Henry Nowen. What? So we'll have to talk. What? <laughs> the return of the prodigal son just like hit me yes, to the core on life. I can't explain it. That was probably the most instrumental book, honestly, beyond mere Christianity in my life. Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh, I can't, I can't wait to talk more about that. <laughs> <laughs> but as, as you were sharing, I was thinking about... Um, you know, it's not every day, but there come moments in our lives where we're clearly we're going to make a decision one way or another that's going to have an enormous impact. We have a moment of clarity, a moment of conviction when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and we have to choose how we're going to respond. If we're going to let that moment pass, if we're going to you know, stick our fingers in our ears and not listen. And, you know, if you don't come from this tradition, there, there are Christians who come from a tradition where there's this um 
at the end of every service, there's an altar call. And sometimes that's made fun of by, by those outside that tradition, not really understanding what this big deal is. But I think it comes from the idea that in that moment, in that church service, during that time, God may have spoken to your heart. And now is the time to respond to it. If you go out those doors, you're going to forget. You're going to get distracted. You're going to get bombarded. But take some time right now to respond to what God is speaking to you. And, you know, it, it can be overwrought and it, it can be, um, be be confusing. But I think the principle there is really powerful that this is the moment. And if you are having one of those moments right now, then stop what you're doing and respond to God because it may pat, it's going to pat, you're going to get hungry. You're going to get distracted. You're going to get 30 text messages and you will forget the impact of this moment. Don't let it pass. Act on it. I appreciate altar calls. I mean, obviously I, I come from a different bit of a tradition now that we don't do that in our faith, but I was part of a non-denominational church for maybe a year out in San Diego and did an altar call. And it was beautiful because then at the end of it, they took me aside uh, and other people, though I wasn't the only human being that did it, and wanted to equip us with scripture and give us a plan afterwards. And there's something about that when you have the feeling, create the action plan. And Lewis, doesn't he write that in, in uh, screw tape letters where what screw tape wants is when we have that feeling to not act on it because then it just, it, mm-hmm. that's like his tool against us. And I was just listening to a beautiful podcast on human sex trafficking. And I literally, my heart really stirred more than I've probably stirred in six months of like, what can I do to help this? Because I heard this person talk for an hour and a half of a really tragic thing globally. Mm-hmm. And he's like the for, the foremost expert on the whole thing. And that's like, I literally reminded myself of screw tape letters, Matt, you need to do something. Like you actually just at mm-hmm. least a small action. What is it going to be? Don't let this feeling sit in the outer layer. Wasn't there like three layers or something? And never turn to the will. Funny you should mention three layers. (laughs) Is that what you're going to (laughs) say? Fantasy, intellect, and will. We've talked about before. Um, The think of your man is a series of three concentric circles. Fantasy on the outside, intellect. So fantasy, I wish things were like this. Intellect, a decision. Yes, I should do something about this, but until it touches the will. And then, as I've said before on this podcast and elsewhere, uh, an action turns into a habit, which turns into either a virtue or a Mm. vice. And so the process of sanctification is repeating actions until they become habits and internalizing habits until they become virtues. And we actually see this on like the second or third page of this chapter. When the queen says, how now, my lord prince, has your knightly fit not yet come upon you or is it over? Why stand you here unbound? Who are these aliens and what? And and is it they who have destroyed the chair, which was your only safety? And that sounds like the enemy to us when we have forsaken his tools. Prince Rillian shivered as she spoke to him. And no wonder it is not easy to throw off in half an hour an enchantment, which has made one a slave for 10 years years. Mm -hmm. Eustace began to be a better boy. This is the process of, of sanctification. Rillian has had the, had the conversion of the destruction of the chair. And now he's become, begun his small stumbling steps of sanctification. And like it says in mere Christianity, the Lord sometimes takes away his hand after that initial euphoria. And now it's a cold act of turning that feeling, like you were saying, into an action and an action into a habit, not to make slave traffic, you know, trafficking the only thing. But to do something about it, and then to have that be the virtue of compassion for those who are under oppression, 
right? And so that's the path that you're on. And that's the path that the white witch or that the green witch wants to get really in off of. This is what I love about Lewis. I mean, we're sitting here and I'm feeling so convicted right now. I'm feeling (laughs) the same thing. We're vibing, everybody. We're vibing. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking about things that I know God has called me to do, spiritual disciplines or or bad habits to break or new habits to form. And it's been tough. And I've been giving in and I've been going for the comfort of harping. (laughs) I can relate. In the last episode, I'm like, oh, this is much easier. I'm just going to I'm just going to go go there. And and realizing that you know the it, yeah the battle is fierce because the enemy is real and some of these things that I'm wrestling with I've been wrestling with my whole life and so to think that in 15 minutes in a warm fuzzy feeling I'm going to suddenly throw them off no I mean there's there's a battle to be fought there's a war to be won and it's going to take some time and so I mean this is this is what I mean this is why I wrote what I did and shared what I did about Lewis and scripture, because it's so powerful and it's been such a, a huge part of my spiritual formation and, and continues to be to this moment. Well, you're bringing it back to a comment I didn't make in the last episode, but I thought about it. One of the bullet points when I was going through this was, so they have that realization that they're, they need to get out of here. You know, they've made this mistake that that second to last chapter we talked about, and they need to get back to their focus. And you could think like, that's kind of what we're talking about, this feeling, this desire, this stirring. And then they get on the path. And remember, they make that comment where they realize they've escaped the castle, but the real challenge has just started. I interpret that mm-hmm. like, okay, you've realized that this pleasure is taking you over and you've made in your heart like this metanoia where you turn the 180, you repent. Well, now the challenge really begins. Now is it's mm-hmm. it's not like you've, you've just gotten through the challenge and you're no longer sin is there and you're done. It's like, no, 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 no. Now the challenge begins. The giants are on the path. You've got to be careful. Like that's how I interpret that. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and this is an amazing passage. The, the, the queen starts arguing, right? And starts trying to confuddle them, to confuse them. Is that the next chapter? It is. It is the next chapter. Well played. Oh, okay. Just pulled a David Bates right there. Well done. Very nicely <laughs> David done. is just okay. smiling. I wasn't, wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, let's, uh, let's progress to the next chapter because I think it's the heart of everything. Chapter 12. As they flee, they meet the queen who tries to dissuade them and enchant them using music and enchanted smoke. They all begin to fall under the spell until Puddleglum stamps the fire with his foot. The queen, Alamia, turns into a snake and attacks and then Rillian kills her. We talk about, and there's this fantastic line, and it talks about this, this thing that we were just discussing in terms of sanctification. The more enchanted you get, the more you feel that you are not enchanted at all, right? The soft path, gentle underfoot, right? No so, signs. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Lewis actually says the same thing about alcohol. He's, he, he, said, he says, the more drunk you get, the less drunk you realize you are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't have that yes. issue. <laughs> Yeah, that's yes. right. You're Actually, no, no. This is that's, I should not tell this story from college, guys. This was nine years ago. But the first time I might have had a little bit too much to drink before I realized limits and stuff in my faith. I was famous for, and it's now carried with me to this day, where I drank way too much one night, and I went up to my friends and said, Matt, "Hey, they're like Bush, how you doing?" I'm like, "I'm right where I need to be. I'm right where I need to be. I'm good." And I was way beyond where I should have been. So now, anytime <laughs> you and I have one beer, like Matt, how you doing? You right where you need to be. Oh, oh thanks boy. guys. Well, you know, we've all all through this uh through 
the silver chair, we have this biblical principle of, of how Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Mm-hmm. He comes to us looking attractive. And, and in this case, it, it's a female uh, uh, demonic presence, this witch who is like scripture, it says, um, her words drip with honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. She's instead of doing a frontal attack, right. Instead of, of beginning with a sword, um, you know, she comes at them with all this sweetness and what sounds like logic and, and persuasive words. Um, she twists everything that they try to say. Uh, and we need to be aware of that. That's, those are the same strategies of the enemy described in screw tape and elsewhere. And, and certainly in scripture, he twists our words. He gets us confused. He makes us feel silly and ashamed. And, and if the more that we try to debate, I mean, we're not equipped uh, for that battle and we're much better off uh, remembering the signs and sticking to the truth that, that Puddleglum is about to remind them of. Here's where you have the heart of the Orpheus myth, because Orpheus's wife has been bitten by a snake, like Rillian's mother, taken to the underworld and King Hades, King Pluto and Queen Persephone. Orpheus, the great musician, goes down, charms his way by means of his music to an audience with the king, plays music for the king in order to free his wife. And what you see is Lewis chiastically flipping it. So instead of a king, King Orpheus, going down to a king, King Pluto, and using music to liberate, you have a girl, a commoner, Jill, going down to the underworld to meet a queen who's using music to enslave, right? And it's uh, instead of a, a woman who is being enslaved in the Orpheus tale, it's Rillian who is being enslaved in this tale. So you've got all kinds of this chiastic gender kind of flipping and going on. And then you have the allegory of the cave, so which says that the shadows point to the real, and that's the very opposite of the arguments that the queen makes. Oh, yes, Aslan. Tell me about Aslan. He's a lion. Oh, what's a lion? It's like a big cat. Oh, well, you extrapolated a cat from a lion from a cat. Well, there's the sun. Oh, what's the sun? Oh, it's like the lamp. Oh, well, you extrapolated the sun from the lamp. And so he's flipping upside down the logic of Plato's allegory of the cave. There's no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun. And then there's a biblical reference here. Um, The prince says, you see the lamp, it is round and yellow and gives light to the whole room and hangeth moreover from the roof. Now that thing which we call the sun is like the lamp, only far greater and, and brighter. It giveth light to the whole overworld and hangeth in the sky. And it's the light that gives light to all men, right? It's Christ who gives light to all men. It's this kind of King James echo. Um, and she tries to, she, she has this smoke that's kind of wooing them in, this incense, this false incense, she, um, this enchantment. And, and you've got the playing. And it reminds me of nothing so much as Weight of Glory, where Lewis says, remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell, which can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of world, worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. King Rillian will be later known as King Rillian the un, the disenchanted. He has been unenchanted. And what is that beautiful smell that disenchants everybody? 
it's puddle glum saying the real world beats your fairy tale world all even my made up world beats this world all to pieces and he stamps on the flame and the smell of burnt marsh wiggle which is probably one of birdie bot's every flavor beans in harry potter <laughs> the smell of burnt marsh wiggle but it's that smell of suffering of pain that wakes us up from the enchantment that everything's going to be great and easy. And so it's St. Paul says that God has graciously granted not only that you believe in him, but also that you suffer for him. And Puddleglum suffers and and wakes everyone up. Yeah. Well, but that, that's the quote that we open the, the podcast with, um, where he says, I'm going to live like a Narnian, even if there isn't any Narnia. And I, I couldn't help but hear echoes of Paul with that, where Paul said, I know whom I have believed in, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know. And you can tell me anything you want to tell me, but I'm holding fast. I mean, that's one of the most powerful professions of faith in all of Narnia. I've seen people get it tattooed on their on their arm or their leg as a, as a reminder that we're going to live like Narnians. When I was a teenager, I don't know, this is a kind of random thought, but I remember learning about the Vietnam War and learning about how prisoners of war were treated and how they were kept in, in, in these terrible cages and abused. And they were bombarded with propaganda day and night, telling them, your families have forgotten you, your, nobody cares about you, your country has forgotten you, your country is evil and immoral, and everything that you're fighting for and living for is is over or gone or, or hogwash, you know, just this constant onslaught. And the ones that were able to survive, and many of them didn't, but the ones that were able to survive were the ones that somehow found an inner reserve to, to resist that messaging, to resist that constant bombardment. And I remember as a teenager recognizing that and thinking of Puddle Glum. Whoa. And, and <laughs> hearing this going, and then, and then extrapolating that to my own life, okay, and going, okay, where is the enemy bombarding me? with propaganda, filling my ears, my eyes with hopelessness, with despair. This is terrible. You're never going to survive this. It's an all for nothing, right? All those kinds of discouragements. And what do I need to stand on? What do I need mm -hmm. to stake my claim? What, what am I going to answer that mm -hmm. with? And of course, Puddle Glum's answer is, is Aslan and uh, the true king of Narnia and to remember where he's from and who he's fighting for. And I think that's something we all need to remember. I love that. And I just have to add this because I've been spending weeks in the hospital seeing people who are recovering from great pains and seeing their reactions. And some people respond in tremendous faith and hope in the midst of their pain. And some are, you know, are having terrible days. Um, and I love this quote when he stamps on the fire and before he makes his great affirmation of faith, I'm going to live like a Narnian, even if there is no Narnia. What brings him to that is this. The pain itself of stamping on the fire made Puddleglum's head for a moment perfectly clear, and he knew exactly what he thought. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. And of it's course, Aslan's megaphone. Yes. No, do that, David. Uh, I was just alluding to the problem of pain. Uh, the famous quotation where Lewis talks about the different ways that God speaks and sometimes he shouts through our pain, his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Yes. We would, in this world, we will have trouble, but God intends to use our pains to clarify our vision and clarify what we believe. And we know that pain is the way of life because it's the way of the cross, right?
The only other thing I wanted to say with regards to that exchange is the fact that I think the Lady of the Green Curdle has read a lot of Freud. <laughs> really? Because Freud's point was that there is no God. It's just a projection of a supernatural father. We have a father, so we project uh, and a bigger, better father. And that's what Christians call God. And she's also a very good materialist. This world is all there is. And she wants them to deny the golden sun and see her own kingdom as the greatest, as all there is. She quite literally wants them to take her silver chair rather than the golden sun. Mm-hmm. And it's all derivative, as yes. in the same way that moonlight is derivative sunlight. But good old Puddle Glum, he says, our lives won't be very long, I dare say, or I should think, but that's small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say, <laughs> right? Which is very Lewisian. This was, this was his thing when you read Surprised by Joy. He says that everything that I believe was real was boring and dull. Yes. And everything that I valued, I thought was fantasy. Puddleglum, the original unscrewer of Screwtape. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys, this is one of my favorite chapters in this, and you guys pretty much hit almost every point, I would say. The only thing I would draw out to listeners in my own personal experience, I really resonated with that. And this was the quote of the week. And all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than a real one. So that was where the queen is trying to convince them that everything they're doing is, or everything they believe is just false. It's, it's, and I've been through that, but in my own spiritual journey, when I read mere Christianity, it was at a dark point in my life. And I was reading books on atheism, the new atheists, other types of philosophies. I was trying to figure out the answer to life. And when I read mere Christianity, I didn't actually say to myself, Christianity is true. But I said to myself, even if this is false, this is way better than what anything else is proposing to me. And so I said, I'm going to give it a try. And then if you want to connect Chesterton to this, he says, Christianity is not tried and found wanting, but left untried. And David, can you finish this for me? The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, but found difficult and left There untried. we go. <laughs> I'm always 80% there. Um, and that was my personal experience. So if anyone's listening to this, and, and is struggling with these things. It's it's there's just so much truth that when you understand the true beauty of Christianity and what it's offering you, it, it didn't actually it became less important to me whether it was true or not. And then over time I realized the truth and the beauty of it. But that was just my own journey. And so I would just really highlight that part of this chapter. But everything else you guys said was like money, and I wouldn't change a word. And that idea of doing an experiment, giving it a go and finding it out, that is what I would say is at the heart of Pascal's wager. When he basically mm-hmm. looks at what are the options, either there's God or not God, what do you win and lose, depending upon how you bet on that answer. Yes. And it's not a proof of God per se, but it should at least be enough to put a fire under you to try, because you have the possibility of winning everything, both in eternity and actually even now. And that's what Puddleglum argues here. I've heard people refer to this as Puddleglum's wager. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say it's quite the same, but there is a similar idea to it, that he sees that this way of looking at the world seems much better than yours to begin with mm-hmm. and you know what it could even be true <laughs> right well and you know i'm sure that some of the folks listening to this podcast are are tossing back and forth about christianity and wondering whether or not it's true and looking for something that's real and and reliable and i salute the courage and the honesty of that journey and it reminds me of uh, of a girl that i taught in the christian high school um, that i where i used to work 
And she was in my C.S. Lewis class and came to be one, one day with many questions about Christianity and why it might be better than all other religions and, and what was it all about. And she was ready for an answer. And I said, listen, I've got an idea. If some people worship a stone as an idol, as a god, if you invite that idol into your heart, you can wait and see the results. Try inviting Jesus into your heart and see what happens. And if a stone, if you invite a stone into your heart, nothing's going to happen. If Jesus isn't real and you invite him into your heart, similarly, nothing's going to happen. But if Jesus is real, if the Son of God is real, if the name of Aslan is the thing that saves in the deepest darkness, call on Jesus, give him a try, offer him your life. If he's not a God, if he's not real, nothing will happen to you and you've lost nothing. But if he is real, he'll come in and, and set up shop in you and show you the love of God in a way that nothing else in the world can. There's nothing to lose. I love, too, how this chapter bridges our last season and our next, because we talk about the real. And remember, Screwtape says in, in letter one, don't ever ask him to define what real life might actually mean. Um, and so look at what the queen's definition of real is and, and explore that. In The Four Loves, Lewis says that for the critical mind, the challenge is not to praise or dispraise, but define and describe. And that's certainly what Puddleglum's doing here. And my favorite part of this chapter is at the end when Rillian says, Come, my friends, here are some wine left. Let us refresh ourselves and each pledge his fellows. After that, to our plans. I love the fact it's like, <laughs> hey, there's some wine here. Let's drink. <laughs> let's toast each other. Then we'll work out what we're going to do next. <laughs> so if the peppermint is the Eucharist that Eustace offers her uh, at the beginning, you know, a token of faith, uh, a shared sweetness, uh, an act of communion. Here's the uh, here's the other part of the Eucharist and the wine that they pledged. <laughs> I love it. The fact that she was the serpent the whole time doesn't isn't it so true in our real own spiritual journeys that Satan comes to us in disguised as beauty and tempts mm -hmm. us in that sense. I really love that Lewis used that imagery and mm -hmm. yeah, that's pretty much all I want to say there. But that just that just resonated with me a lot. Well, and later on, when she tells the story, Jill tells about how we killed the snake, even though she's in the corner trying not to blub, you know, she's sitting there trying not to cry. And so Jill gets to tell the story and she's an equal partner of this. So what we see, Paul Ford talks about how horse and his boy is kind of the pivot for Lewis elevating the role of women. And we see that happening well on the way here. Um, Jill, Jill, uh, it shows up as, as very noble, um, even though it's really in who kills the snake. Um, Jill has her part. Well, I think it's significant that it has to be really in who kills the snake. Mm. He's the one that's been under the enchantment and he has to play a part in freeing himself. You know, um, he, he has to pick up his sword. Um, ultimately, the outcome has been determined by Aslan, but he does his part. I love that. Yes. And what happens when he's done that? He finds that his black shield is now silver because... Mm the Luna, uh, yes. but also there's now a device on that shield, Aslan's device. His yes. identity has been restored. And what's really interesting is in this scene, if you notice, the children refer to each other using their Christian names, not Scrub oh, and Paul, wow. but Jill and Eustace. Very nice. Mm. Very nice catch, David. Excellent. Ah, oh, beautiful. Beautifully done. But I also want to ask, 
the water is rising since the queen has died. It seems that the underworld has a self-destruct mechanism. So I want to ask, is the witch, in fact, a James Bond villain? <laughs> <laughs> She's probably as much a James Bond villain as she is a relative of Jadis, the, the white witch. Um, <laughs> this is one of the factual errors that Lewis made because uh, uh, this witch comes from the north. She doesn't come from Charn. And Jadis is the last survivor of Charn. And so by associating them, I think it was Warney who pointed out that Lewis made a mistake, and I think he copped to it. So we'll give well, him that one. I interviewed Stuart from the YouTube channel Inside Into the Wardrobe, uh -huh. and he has a video where he presents all of the different fan theories about the origins of the Lady of the Green Kirtle, oh, wow. trying to reconcile all of the data. Some of them are wild. <laughs> I bet they are. Before we go on to the next chapter, I want to point out that David – behind the scenes as we were talking about this great stuff, moved a Trello card away. And I got a notification that he has been doing some sort of Trello organizational admin stuff as we've been recording. Boy, I was wondering what that mouse was doing uh -huh. in his hand. David's <laughs> sitting here multitasking. Who says men can't multitask? He can't help himself. Uh, and literally he moved the episode that we were recording right now into the editing side. I'm like, we ain't done yet, oh, buddy. Boy. We ain't done. <laughs> Listeners, we we're, uh, we're using a program called Zencaster. It's kind of like uh, Zoom, Skype, whatever, but it allows us to see each other as we're speaking. Uh, although you can't see us, nor do you want to, um, uh, but uh, but allows an additional layer of fellowship. So, uh, and I see David waving his his uh, his magic uh -huh. mouse around, so and Matt eating popcorn. Yes, <laughs> just to create work for our audio editor. I mute it there most of the time when I'm eating. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> we, we see a little bit of Jill's journey, or, or more importantly, I just want to note the, the transition that we've had, because this story began with Jill showing off on the edge of a cliff and uh, making fun of Eusus for his acrophobia, his, his fear of heights and open spaces and all this kind of stuff. And then we've seen Jill herself humbled when it's come to her claustrophobia. And we've actually seen that Eustace has actually been very kind to her. And we've seen each of the children have their own different skills. Because now that the witch is dead and they're planning their escape, we discover that Jill was very brave with the horses, which was not something that Eustace was. That okay. each of them had their own skills and their own development and their own journey throughout this entire story. Hmm. You know, I don't know if the same spiritual principle works in Narnia as works in our world, but when our Lord said, when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. But here are three um, gathered in Aslan's name, and Aslan's name is the one sign that they hang on to, and the one sign that they don't flub, and the one sign that actually makes everything come come true. Uh, and so uh, maybe their gathering in Aslan's name makes Aslan somehow present. So... Good for them. All right. Now, chapter 13. Yes? Yes. As the three flee, they prepare to find the Earthmen who come upon them, and they slip by to escape. Uh, but they capture one gnome who welcomes the news of the witch's death. Before they discover that they aren't the only ones glad to be free of the witch, um, I love what Rillian says uh, here when he... He cautions the children, uh, Puddleglum, you know, where they're riding out. They think they're going to be attacked by the gnomes that, you know, they think they're going to, they may die in their attempt to escape. Rillian says, Aslan will be our good Lord. 
whether he means us to live or die. Yes. And all's one for that. Well, what did the Apostle Paul say? If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Hmm. Um, I think of that just with all the things going on in our world right now. I've talked to some people who have felt very fearful and anxious um, on all sides of the whole uh, the pandemic and all the different viewpoints about individual freedoms versus the terrible disease. And you know what I, I come back to over and over is Aslan will be our good Lord, whether we live or die. There are some of these things we cannot control. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many of these things, most of these things we cannot control. But we can serve Jesus. We can trust him and know that whether we live or die, we belong to him and he'll lead us safely home. Mm-hmm. And that was actually something that Puddle said in a different way in an earlier chapter where he said, Aslan told us to follow the signs. He didn't tell us what would happen when we did it. You know, when you when you play something like the health and wealth gospel against those of the early martyrs, they were faithful. They didn't deny Christ, but there were some consequences to that that they left this world in a violent manner, but yet to be glorified with Him. That uh, we, we've we've mentioned on the show before the quotation. I think it's Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta, where she says, "We're called to not be successful, but to be faithful." Right. This is what God asks of us, to be obedient, to be faithful to the things that he's asked us to do. Guys, name yes. where this quote yeah. is from. In Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass him. It did not. Yes, that's a, isn't that mere Christianity? The world's last night. Last night. World's last night. What that is on my phone album. background. Right. Oh, wow. Beautifully yeah. produced for us by Brittany. <laughs> Thank you, Brittany. It's one of the perks. If you join oh. Patreon, you get some uh, cell phone wallpapers. To Brittany. To Brittany. <laughs> to Brittany. <laughs> Slack wouldn't be the same well, without a- her. there's another great Lewis quote. And I, unlike my husband, I don't have the kind of memory where I can immediately pull up the book and the page number. I can uh, relate. Exactly. (laughs) But where he talks about uh, the, the prayer, um, he says that for most of us, casting mountains into the sea can wait. Um, You know, Gethsemane is the, is the prayer that most of us are going to wrestle with, Uh, you know, just surrendering our will to, and not my will, but thine be done. That'll keep us busy, most of us, for most of our lives. And then the other things that we want to pray for, okay. <laughs> I love Page that. 73. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kidding. Garden of Gethsemane, now that's page 823 of the Bible. Paragraph okay, four. Great. Thank you. Okay, great. Yes. <laughs> I love this. Um, as, they're, as they're making their way out, um, the prince, uh, Rillian, whistled as he rode and sang snatches of an old song about corn thunderfist of Arkenland. And so there's the story of Horse and His Boy that we heard early on, and he knows that song. And so it's coming back. And that's a nice bit of kind of artistic resonance that Tolkien, I think, is better at than Lewis. But good for him um, for, uh, for, for piecing that all together. So we see everybody uh, being captured, want to be wanting to be freed, and everybody rejoicing that the witch is dead. Chapter 14, The Bottom of the World. The Earthmen rejoice to be freed from bondage to the Queen and return far below. The three make their way to the top of the underworld. Here we get the myth of the salamander, isn't it, in this chapter? Mm-hmm. Where they look down and see a salamander in the heat. And, yeah, uh, it's from medieval mythology. Yes. Uh, 
And I think it's because they, they would go to sleep inside wood and then the wood would be thrown on a fire and then suddenly the salamander would come hurtling out. And oh. that's where the idea that salamanders are born from fire comes from. Okay. I got it. Uh, I have a fun fact for you, though. Uh, do you know yes, what bism please. means? I was just going to ask. I, I do, David, <laughs> but I'll let you tell us. Oh, thank, thank you, Matthew. <laughs> that uh, was an abysmal attempt, David. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> any, any Friends listeners who've seen the TV show Friends will be like when Joey says, oh, that was abysmal. And he thinks that means like, great. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, uh, David. Uh, bism means no bottom. Oh, and where did you find that out? Uh, I can't remember. I now. told. I told. Uh, him. I would have to. Oh yeah, that's it. Matt told me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, and let me. Um, Diana Glyer often accuses me of giving too much, constantly giving too much credit uh, to my betters, um, but I can't help it. Um, so if I, so many of the good ideas that I've had about Narnia come from reading books um, by, by wonderful scholars. Paul Ford and his Companion to Narnia, the fifth edition, I recommend as highly as I possibly can. It's one of my top five books about not only Narnia, but about Lewis. And there's an entry for every single thing. And that may be where the, uh, the reference to Bism came from. Um, several pages on the role of sexism, women, uh, pages on Plato, marvelous, marvelous stuff. So money back guarantee on that one. What do you have for this chapter, huh? Well, I think about how uh, Rillian isn't the only one to be set free. I mean, that was certainly their focus was was setting Rillian free from the enchantment. But come to find out that in setting him free, they've actually set free an entire world of creatures and and uh, that have been longing for redemption. And we, we hear the echo of the scripture that says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning mm -hmm. as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time, that creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed uh, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Mm. Um, we know that this world, it's not just us who are in bondage, right? It's this whole world. It's creation since the fall. Uh, everything has, everyone and everything has been impacted uh, by sin and God has set us free and we're waiting for the completion of, of that. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a great echo to see that in, to see what that might look like in the land of Bism, to see that all of these creatures are suddenly set free and joyful and ready to return home. And it's not just, I guess, maybe the, the point, the, little point for that one is it's not just about us. <laughs> um, <you know? laughs> it's, there's a much bigger picture here. In this chapter, when the gnome Golg points out that they were under the chamber, so before they were set free, as you were mentioning, I just really love the part where he said, we didn't know who we were or where we belonged. And mm. I just thought mm. the times that I have felt where I've known exactly who I am and I felt like I belong or when I've been resting in the presence of Christ, when I've been living out of mm -hmm. my authentic identity that Henry Nouwen say, mm -hmm. would say that you are loved, you are my beloved. And when mm -hmm. I create that space and live out of that, it's amazing. Uh, mm -hmm. When I don't, I feel out of place. I don't know who I am and I'm uncentered. And life is just, I don't feel any centeredness or any peace or any joy. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Rillian's temptation and how like father, like son, because in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Caspian is tempted to go with the children to the end of the world, even though he knows he's not meant to. He has another mission. Well, in a similar way, Rillian is tempted to go into Bism, to go to the bottom of the world, uh, mm -hmm. rather than return to the surface. Uh, 
And but the difference is, is that he doesn't need a, a personal appearance from Aslan to get back on mission. That's an important point, though. I mean, each of us has a calling. Um, we have a mission. We have a quest, and mm-hmm. and you know we need to respect that and not step outside of it. I think of as you were talking, I thought of King David. You know, he wanted to build a temple for God, right? And the prophet, I think it was Nathan that came to him and said, look, God sees it it was good that it's in your heart to do it, but this task has not been appointed to you. Mm -hmm. This is for your son. And and knowing our lane, I mean, that's hard to accept sometimes. We live in a world that's always like, you know, just follow your dreams. You can be all you want to be. And, um, you know, (laughs) well, we can be all God's created us to be, but that may have some boundaries and that may have some some privileges and some responsibilities. I love that. Hmm. Absolutely. There's, uh, it's just, it's endless. Um, We get a brief mention of Father Time um, and we will see him return again in the last battle. And uh, once again, there are these kind of, uh, these these pieces that Lewis is dropping about different kinds of stories and, uh, and, and helping us to read well. And they're starting to read their situation well. And um, I also love how um, people are so different. And uh, their sensibilities are different, and I think that it encourages us to charity. You know, the Earthmen want to don't want to get up; they want to get down, right? They want to go back home, and um, I think that that's part of the unique panoply of how God has created so many people uh, in in so many different ways, and and that we need them all. And of course, I love the the uh, any reference to Reaper Cheap the Mouse. Um, so uh, look forward to always to mentions of him. So we have uh, gotten to the bottom of the world, and now it's time for the disappearance of Jill. Uh, I do want to point out Puddleglum's very optimistic comment that if they'll die underground, at least it'll save on funeral expenses. (laughs) Never say he's not an optimist. Yes, absolutely. Oh, Puddleglum, love him. Um, by the way, I'd like to notice that I've tried to move us on several times and David's interrupted. So <laughs> that probably is my favorite comment of season four. <laughs> Don't count on it ever happening again. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, tell us about the disappearance of Jill. And- David just wanted to redeem himself right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yep. just waiting for the magician's nephew and the, the Uncle Andrew jokes are going to come thick and fast. Oh, so boy. prepare yourself. Do you know that's one of the first things he said to me after we got engaged and he realized I come from this huge family with lots of nieces and nephews? He looked me right in the eye and said, oh, my gosh, now I'm going to be Uncle Andrew. That's <laughs> terrible. And you're having him grow out his hair. I, I'm, I think the transformation is just is starting so to long, happen. Andrew. I love it. <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> Actually, you know, a blessed memory, dear Walter Hooper, um, as I mentioned, I visited with him uh, at Mass in 2013, and he wasn't very well. Um, he had had some, some health issues. But the next year, I went back um, and saw him again um, in 2014, and he was always very gracious to invite me over to tea. He never invited me when his friend P- Priscilla Tolkien was there, um, which is a great tragedy, uh, in my opinion. Um, but I did bring her some coffee once, and I received a lovely handwritten note from Priscilla. In 2014, Walter was in much better health, had me over to tea. He had a lovely cat called the Blessed Lucy of Narnia. Um, and Blessed Lucy was uh, just a stay and a friend for him. 
And I knew that Walter was back when his subtle, sly sense of humor came back. And so I was sitting in the sitting room and he was in the kitchen preparing our tray of tea. And uh, Lucy was around his feet and he said, Blessed Lucy, you need to go visit your Uncle Andrew. <laughs> and then he came and he brought this tray of tea and he brought me these little biscuits um, and fr from Sainsbury's or somewhere. And they were called the Nice Biscuits. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> that, oh, that yeah. was in 2017. So. So he, he comes with this tray. Kristen was there to, to, to visit. I can him. verify this. And there are these, you know, rectangular biscuits and they say nice. And he said, Andrew, very hard castle baked these biscuits for you. They're very nice. <laughs> the National Institute of Coordinated Expenses Experiments from, from, uh, uh, from that hideous strength. They're, they're so delicious. She, Don't lose your head. I think she likes you. She's quite interested in your head. <laughs> so to Walter in Blessed To memory. Walter. To Walter. Now, shall we move on to the next chapter? <laughs> yes. Chapter okay. That feels better. <laughs> the world is restored. <laughs> Order is restored. Boy, that's that's nice for a change, yeah. David. <laughs> it was getting weird, Andrew, with you being the one that pulled us together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, hey, Matt, how about reading this one, if you will? They break through into Narnia, finding several Narnians in the midst of a winter snow dance. Dwarfs dig them out, all come up. They tell their tales and are warmly welcomed. And the disappearance of Jill is they're kind of um, climbing up. Um, the, the prince and the queen have been planning to invade Narnia. And they have had these digs where they're going to kind of take Narnia by surprise. And that's the way that Rillian and Puddleglum and Jill um, make their, and Eustace make their way up. And Jill comes up and every, the, those who remain underground thinks that she, think that she has disappeared. You know, it's kind of humorous to note. And, and I don't claim that Lewis intended every single parallel or principle that you can find, although he certainly intended some of them. Um, but reading about Jill trying to convince the Narnians who have been waiting and praying and hoping and believing that somehow Rillian would be found, uh, they don't believe her. Uh, and she's trying to tell them we've got him and they they don't believe her. And I, I couldn't help but think of, um, of examples like that in the book of Acts. Remember when the disciples were all praying for the release of Peter from prison <laughs> and he came and banged on the door and they didn't let him in. You know, they couldn't believe it was him. Um, sometimes we're, we're really caught off guard when God answers our prayers. How bad mm. is this that I don't remember that story? <laughs> Clearly Matt needs to read Acts yeah. a little bit more deeply. <laughs> Yes. It's when, a good read. Yeah. It's, it's, what is it? Would you recommend, recommend it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Peter and, and John are, are thrown in jail and they, John? It was just Peter. Just Peter by himself. Peter. Okay. Yeah. And then he's, he's released and he comes and knocks at the door and they all come and then they freak out and run away. Oh, it's, it's, his, it's his angel. It's his angel. Yeah. 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 Well, so. I was just going to comment that their means of escape here actually puts me in mind of Lewis's best book, The Great Divorce. Mm. And the... <laughs> <laughs> we should get we should get Kristen to come in the middle of this one. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that, Kristen. We'll circle back to that. No, no, no. I want them to have a peaceful night. Uh, yes, thank you. But, uh, but the, the, the ghost with the lizard on his shoulder, that when that lizard is killed, it becomes the very means of his salvation. Well, what the Lady of the Green Kirtle intended uh, for their harm... 
Aslan intended for their good. It is their very means of escape. Oh, that's great. No, yes. it's fantastic. And Beautiful. and all of those plans, and I remember what it was. I remember what I what I wanted to bring up in the last chapter, but this is this is it. T-Bone Burnett, uh, a famous uh, singer, songwriter, producer, um, played in uh, Bob Dylan's band for a while, has produced a number of wonderful records, uh, said that as a Christian and an artist, I can do two things. I can either write about the light or I can write about what I see by the light. And I would add a third thing. I think another thing that Christians can do is be eloquent about the darkness and make no mistake, it's a very dark world in our country right now. It's a very dark world in so many of the ethical problems that, that we have and face and so many of the sins of the past. And I'm not going to get political except to say that our citizenship is not of this world. And the darkness of our present age, like Frank Peretti wrote about you know, 40 years ago, this present darkness, which is in it, with us in a unique way, that darkness can help us help remind us that this world is not our home and that we are destined for a better world. And so I would encourage listeners, as you feel the stress and the oppression of disease and war and hatred and anger and disagreement and the polemics and the tweets that just go crazy, let them remind you that it was not always thus, nor will it always be this way, that Christ is coming with his kingdom to set all things to right. And our job in this world is to shine like the sun, Jesus says in the parables, and to bring light into this darkness. Do what you can, and sometimes it takes turning off the news, but do what you can to bear light into a dark situation and to speak kindness and grace into these difficult things. And that's, I think, one of the things that the darkness of the silver chair reminds us is that this is the current state, but not our home. And our home is in heaven, and we can bring some of that light of that eternal home into our daily lives and into others who so desperately need to see it, especially if they don't yet believe. That's what I wanted to say. And friends, on that note, <laughs> join us next week. We'll be going further up and further in. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I preach, Matt ends an episode. Honestly, like there's 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 times where I've been where we're nearing an end of an episode. I'm like, all right, like. I feel like the episode only goes backwards if we continue talking after that. So you might as well send it here. <laughs> but I, I want to talk about centaurs and why you should never invite them to breakfast. <laughs> David's like, I've got something more <laughs> profound to talk about. <laughs> it's another meal. <laughs> well, I, I even skipped over the honey cakes that uh, Prince William said that they got from a barbarous nation in the South. Hat tip to another book that's coming up. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, I loved hearing about the, the centaurs and the, and the food that they ate. Yes, yes. Didn't they um, get up at dawn and start eating, feeding the horsey part of themselves? Yes. Right, a bushel of oats or something like that? Yeah, they have uh, bacon and omelet and hands and toast and beer for their human parts. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And then they have oats and sugar and hot mash for their centaur stomach. Uh, for their organs, and the horsey part, horsey part. Beer for breakfast? Absolutely. Especially <laughs> when you're having a full English. So. <laughs> Yeah, Weatherspoon is is a is a good place to go for that. Anything else about the disappearance of Jill? Oh, I was already rushing on to the healing of harms. Sorry, I got Great. I got too excited. I just wanted to talk about breakfast. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> well, last chapter, they returned to Care Paravel. They returned 
Prince really into a dying King Caspian. He passes away, and then Aslan comes to take them to back to his country. He takes a thorn and bleeds on the dead Caspian and raises him to life. They have a joyous reunion, and then the children go back to Experiment House. Remember, the bullies were hot on their heels, and they beat back the bullies, um, including a centaur, right, and Caspian. And the tale con concludes with a few details about what happened afterwards in both of the countries, and thus ends what some have called the Caspiad, the <laughs> books about Caspian, Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and The Silver Chair. And it's the first four main books of the Chronicles of Narnia. This is one of those parts that often makes me get a little teary. <laughs> yes, yes. Matt, how did this chapter strike you, reading it for the first time? Well, there's two pretty, I guess, big scenes in here that hit me. And the one was when Eustace was talking to Aslan, or not Eustace, sorry, Jill at the end. And she's not talking, she's just thinking through and she's feeling bad about how she forgot the four signs. And it's weighing heavy on her heart. And I, ha and I first of all, just very much related to that because I have to imagine when I die, I'm going to think of Lord willing, if I can enter into communion with God for eternity and say, thy will be done to him rather than my own will. Still not quite convinced which will I'm going to choose yet, but <laughs> um, I feel like if I'm blessed enough to have, have chosen his will over my will, that I'm going to regret and feel really sad of the ways that I, I knew I fell short. And yet he says, mm -hmm. think of that no more. I will not always be scolding. You have done the work for which I have sent you into Narnia. Mm-hmm. And, and that just really just jumped out to me um, and was really, I thought, a very grace-filled scene, a very mercy-filled scene. And that something is yeah. someone who's more type A needs, I need that reminder more than the average person. There's some people that might go too far to the other extreme. But for me, it's like, all right, I need to hear that more mm -hmm. often. Reminders of grace. His grace is sufficient for us, right? Yes. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Yes. It would be remiss of me. I, I missed a couple in the last chapter. In chapter 15, two clear literary references. Um, Jill, as soon as she got her head out of the hole, she found that she was looking down as if from an upstairs window, not up as if through a trap door. And when Dante and Virgil come up from uh, the Inferno, they think they're going up, but in fact, they have been down and everything flips, uh, flips right side up, but they think it's upside down. And then if we missed Plato's allegory of the cave in chapter 15, uh, Jill could see firelight in the mouth of a cave. And so Lewis is going hint, hint, poke, poke. <laughs> so, sorry. Well, tears were mentioned earlier. And I think that th this is such a beautiful scene where we have the children mourning the death of Caspian. Of course, Jill didn't even know him, but, he used, but Eustace did. And, and the, for us as readers, if we've read through Prince Caspian and Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's a little sickening to us to realize that he's old and dying. And, and as he dies, it says, um, even the lion wept great lion tears. Mm. And I thought of how Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus. Yes. Right? He grieved, um, but then it, it says he was deeply moved in spirit, but then he raised Lazarus from the dead. And here we have a, a, just a beautiful picture, a drop of blood 
Mm -hmm. right? That cleanses Caspian and raises him not old and feeble and with that weary, worn out body, but young and alive as he was in his prime. Um, he's resurrected now, not, not in Narnia, but in Aslan's country. And uh, what a, just a, a beautiful picture of the grace of God, the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin, the hope of heaven, um, and how we hope all of us who have seen our loved ones, as, but it's one of the not so fun things about getting, uh, getting older is, <laughs> is so many people go on before you and you begin to miss those family members and friends. And then it starts to, as my dad said one time, first it's your friend's parents and then it's your friends and then it's you. And you, you realize, you know, if you don't have your priorities straight, if you don't know, if you don't have the hope of heaven, um, you know, that can be incredibly difficult to face. Mm -hmm. But here we see Caspian young and alive and more alive than he ever was. And that's the hope that we all have, that one day we will be more alive than we've ever been in Aslan's country. And in this section... There are lots of allusions to Lewis's best book, The Great Divorce, uh, not only in the youthfulness of Caspian. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Andrew's, Andrew's coughing a bit. But, but, but when he comes to collect the children, <laughs> when he comes to collect the children, he says, I have come, said a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself so bright and real and strong that everything else began at once to look pale and shadowy compared to him. Yes, which is an echo, of course, of what happens at the end of the judgment until we have faces. So thank you for pointing out how the great divorce is no, the no, second done. best book because of how it points to until we have that faces. So good. Some um, of the listeners have... On that note, I'll repeat Lewis's best quote because in this chapter two, we have Caspian saying, oh, don't be such an ass. <laughs> <laughs> I think Andrew's winning. Some of the listeners have, have requested a knockdown, drag them out, winner takes all debate as to which <laughs> Lewis's best book is. But I, I know, we, we're going to save that until the end of Pints for Jack uh, wow. when we're all heading into, or at least Andrew and myself, we're heading into our old folks' homes and that will probably be the final episode. And we I'm will sorry, find listeners, no, it'll never happen because I'm, I'm intended on a life of priesthood and charity forbiddeth <laughs> me from doing such damage <laughs> to my dear friend. <laughs> oh, my... And I'm not allowed to beat up a man of the cloth, even metaphorically. Oh, that was a good response. I love wow. this. Especially if the cloth is what uh, a lean and slippered pantaloon and trousers rolled at the heel. Guys, I really want this episode wow. now because this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you know what? I don't think we can leave this chapter without mentioning one really cool quote uh, that Aslan says to Caspian, or says of Caspian. The children are looking at him, you know, asking if he's if he's died. You know, oh wait, did he not die? What's going on here? They can't immediately understand what's happening with his resurrection. And Aslan says of Caspian, he has died. Most people have, you know, uh -huh. even I have. Yes, which is a beautiful. Uh, <sighs> Allusion to his own death and resurrection in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes. Thanks, Peter. I feel like that's the last thing we say about the book. Well, I was no. just going to say. Well, yeah, both Andrew the guys are here out. on the episode. No, 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 no. <laughs> Let me mansplain well, this, guys. <laughs> Andrew's no. been pointing out literary allusions, and I would say that uh, when Eustace stabs Aslan, it's a chiasm. It's a reversing of Androcles and the Lion. Yes, yes. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also an undoing of the stabbing of Aslan by the White Witch, right? Um, and then the very last literary illusion is um, 
the head of Experiment House. When she saw the lion, she had hysterics and went back to the house and began ringing up the police with stories about a lion escape from a circus, which is a clear and direct reference to Charles Williams' book, The Place of the Lion, which was Lewis's first Williams book and brought their friendship together. I liked finishing on Christian's <laughs> so comment better, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have that one more. Here's Here we go. More. Here we go. <laughs> Aslan gives Jill and Eustace a task. He he gives them a role in dealing with the bullies that have been such a, a, a threat and a, a cause of pain and suffering to them. Um, and he equips them by breathing on them. Mm. And, you know, I, that was so helpful to me because in the, in the New Testament, it often says that Jesus breathed on his disciples and empowered them for the work. And, and that's kind of weird to us in our contemporary culture. That doesn't sound like a pleasant thing at nope. all. <laughs> like, why would you I do hope that? I mouthwash. But here we <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and yet there was spiritual significance to it. He was breathing on them the breath of God. Um, and here, this this has been a beautiful way for me to envision and understand that as Aslan breathes on them and empowers them, fills them with his spirit, right? Mm-hmm. Gives them lion courage. And, uh, and that's got to be our prayer, isn't it? That as we face all the challenges in our life that we've so related to and connected to with the silver chair, um, that Aslan breathes his life on us and equips us for our own quest, our own journey, that we're on even as we speak. I think by very means of coming to these fairy tales, like Lucy, when uh, when she uh, when Aslan breathes on her and says, "Are you strong now?" Yes, Aslan, I'm strong. And when Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, "Receive the Holy Spirit," I think the means of these stories, in the very best that Lewis ever intended, was to bring us to Christ and to fill us with this Holy Spirit that had so filled him by means of story, and to pass this along to us, that we may be filled with the Holy Spirit of love to go out into this dark and difficult world like they returned to an experiment house. And experiment house began to be quite a good school after that. We can take these lessons that Lewis has embedded in these chronicles from the scriptures, from his experience of of sanctification, and we can take them into our world and turn this world around. Thy kingdom come is not just a pie in the sky someday prayer. It's a charge. It's a mission. It's a commissioning to go out and make his kingdom come in the worlds that we'll find ourselves in in this coming week. Well, before we start the wrap up, Kristen, final word. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, um, I think I'm, I'm clinging to a lot of, a lot of truths that I've been reminded of as we've gone chapter by chapter, a lot of images that have been so powerful in, in my spiritual life. But the, the one that I'm taking away with me the most is that it's not easy to throw off an enchantment that you've been under 10 years in half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, many of us are facing tasks that are, are not that easy, uh, but Aslan will be our good Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, he'll be our good Lord. And as Puddle Glum said, his instructions are always work. Um, we can trust him. So we keep fighting the good fight. We keep making one choice after another and knowing that even if we flub all the signs or most of them, uh, that in his sovereignty, he'll bring us safely through. Mm. He will undo or overcorrect or, or, or whatever it is that he needs to do to make up for our mistakes. He'll work it all out. And uh and we'll be we'll find ourselves uh, in Aslan's country one day. Um, that's my hope, and that's my prayer for all of our listeners. And I hope that this, in total, three hours we spent talking about this book has helped break the enchantment uh, among some of our listeners. 
And to the listeners, it's been three hours. We started recording at 5 p.m. It's almost 9 p.m. <laughs> wow. You know, in this world, we will have trouble, our Lord promised us. But take heart, for he has overcome the world. The pain of puddle glum, the stink of this world, can be the thing that wakes us up from the enchantment and sets us about the task that we have to do. And yes, as my wife said, Aslan will be our good Lord, and he will see us through and see us safe home into his country. Fine, Andrew, you can have the final word. That's a good one, I guess. <laughs> I just wanted to set you That's up. That's a good man. one, I guess. <laughs> well, we would definitely like to thank our guest co-host who's been with us for the past two episodes. Uh, Kristen, thank you so much for coming on the show. We hope to see you again. Absolutely. It's been so much fun. Now I know why Andrew is so happy every time he records a broadcast with you guys. It's a lot of fun. Well, and what you don't know is that she's the greatest gift in my life. And so much of the good work that I get to do, even taking hours to, to record the podcast, is by her generous permission. And to have found somebody who knows so much about Narnia and knows so much about the Lord is a great encouragement and a constant, uh, constant encouragement and proof that uh, there is Aslan's country. And someday, as Lewis says, we may have the luck to get there. And here this whole time, I'm thinking Andrew's the wise one. And I'm like, now I'm like, nope, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Clearly not. There's just nope. No. No. Behind every great uh, man is a woman feeding him I finished all our episodes. Yeah. I'm like, man, Andrew is so wise. I'm like, oh man, I need to just talk to Andrew more. I love the advice he gives. Three hours recording with Christian. I'm like, oh, forget Andrew. Let me just go to his wife. (laughs) No, the moral of the story, Matt, is read more Narnia and you may score one of these. Well done. Well done. (laughs) And and I will just say that on our first date, my wife had read Lewis's greatest book uh, in anticipation of our first date. And she got a second date and eventually a ring. So... Uh, If anybody is looking forward to uh, pursuing that, I'm just going to say, maybe read The Great Divorce beforehand. True. Well, and maybe, you know, maybe after a few years of sanctification, she'll, you know, figure out what the the real truth is. Actually, my sending sending parish, my rector, Josh Condon, uh, from Holy Spirit in Houston, said that that was the book that he tested potential dates with. He would have them read The Great Divorce. And if they reacted rightly, then he continued to date them. So uh, he's done well. And he would agree with your benighted, but, you know, okay opinion. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you again to all of our co-hosts today. And thanks to our Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. We have Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. That's a long list. It is a yes. long list. And we've gotten Gillis's name right, which is a, a great accomplishment. <laughs> want to remind you to uh, follow us on iTunes. Uh, leave reviews on iTunes. Those make an enormous uh, yes. difference in our, in, our, uh, in our graphics and all the rest. Um, encourage you to join the, the gang. What are they calling it now? Uh, Pints with Slack. Yep. Um, the <laughs> Slack channel for our Patreon supporters. Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, YouTube. MySpace. Um, MySpace? Yes, we have a new MySpace page. <laughs> Do you still page. have a MySpace page? What do you mean still? I made it. It's coming back. <laughs> we we want Pints with Jack MySpace pages. That would be a uh, t-shirt. Wow. That would be great. Um, of course, we do have our t-shirts and glasses. We've got wonderful merchandise. And so we encourage you to continue on this happy band as we ramp up for next season. 
Join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. 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 Cheers.